Okay, everybody, welcome to Investing with IBD podcast, sponsored by Vantage Point. It's Wednesday, July 21st, 2021. I'm your host, Justin Nielsen, and on today's show, I have Raina Lesser-Hanaway. She is a portfolio manager and analyst at Poland Capital, and she specializes in the small and mid-cap growth names. So we'll be talking with her in a little bit, but let me just lay out what we're going to do on the show. We're going to talk a little bit about the current market, what's been going on this week. It's been a very interesting week. Um, we'll bring Raina on a little bit to talk about why she doesn't care so much about the Wiggles. And in our second segment, we're really going to dive down into what Raina looks at in terms of the financial discipline for the company she's looking at and her own financial discipline in choosing those companies. And as always, we're going to end with a few stock ideas from Raina. So let's go ahead and get into it. I'm going to pull up the market smith, and we are going to take a look at what is going on in the market. This has been a very interesting, um, interesting few few days, really, because we had uh, the market go under pressure just recently as we dipped below the 21-day moving average line. So we actually went to under pressure on Friday, uh, July 16th, as we started approaching the 21-day line on the NASDAQ composite. Um, we dipped below it, but look at how that index just really kind of closed at the top of the range, we saw a lot of reversals in some of the growth names. And that was something that was kind of making it seem like, uh, hey, growth might not be done yet. And we still have this buy on the dip mentality. And we were unsure, was that buy on the dip mentality going to win the day? Or was it going to be a more serious correction since we got extended? So let's go ahead and switch to the S&P 500 real quick. Um, and I should just mention that as for now, um, we do remain in uptrend under pressure, but we'll see a, a little bit more strength and we're gonna be forced to change that. The, uh, the S&P 500, that dipped down, touched the S uh, the 50 day moving average line briefly as it also punctured beneath the 21 day moving average line, but that's right back above the 10 day line now. And again, not very far off the highs. Since we're going to be talking with Raina about small caps, we might as well take a look at the Russell 2000. So I'm going to pull up the iShares Russell 2000 ETF, uh, ticker symbol IWM. Uh, this has just been really in a trading range since the growth kind of started taking its break at the mid of February. Uh, it's been going back and forth. But what's interesting is uh, this kind of came down to the 200-day moving average line. It's still trading up below its 50-day moving average line as it has been for a couple weeks now, but it really didn't puncture the support level that got, you know, that got met at the beginning of March. So all of that kind of pain and suffering that happened at the beginning of March, it's really never gotten worse for the Russell 2000. So um, that's where we stand on the market, but let's go ahead and bring Raina on. Raina Lesser Hanaway from Poland Capital. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Justin. It's really a pleasure to be here. Okay, so what is your kind of gauge of what's going on with the small cap market right now? And how much attention do you pay attention to it anyway? So there's been quite a bit of volatility in the small cap market for several months, but it's not something that we pay a lot of attention to. We really don't try to predict at Poland Capital what's going to happen in the broader market. We believe that this is really difficult to do, and it doesn't have a lot of bearing on the long-term success of the businesses that we invest in. 
I believe that one of the fallacies in the investment world is that investors should be able to predict how the market or individual stocks will move in the short term. Mm-hmm. In my 25 years of doing this, I've come to appreciate that not only is this impossible to do on a repeated basis, it's also irrelevant as a long-term investor in long-duration right. assets. Mm-hmm. And part of that, you know, one of the things we were talking about before the show was, you know, again, not only that repeatable part, but you're really with that long-term focus, you want the math to work for you. You want the compounding to work for you. So um, at what point, I mean, are you ever looking maybe at a more larger picture of rather than the short term, maybe these cycles of years that are happening where, I mean, look, when you started, if, if it was 25 years ago, I know exactly when you started. That was, you know, the late 90s is when you started cutting your teeth. And uh, that was that was a very interesting cycle. At what point do you shift to a preservation of capital idea? Um, or do you just kind of let it let it ride out? So we always focus on preservation of capital. The way we like to describe it at Poland Capital is that we're trying to protect investors' assets while also giving them the opportunity for capital appreciation. And the way that we do this is by focusing on the right kinds of businesses, which for us are all high quality cash flow producing businesses that can compound value at high rates of return over long periods of time. Every company that we invest in has the opportunity to be two to five times the size or greater than they are today. And we believe that if you stay very focused on the long-term, the value of these companies will mirror the compounding in earnings and cash flow over long periods of time. Mm -hmm. And we expect that the prices of these companies in the short-term will move around a little bit, but we don't have to reposition our portfolio in response to that. Instead, we just try to act like owners and really stay focused on the long-term potential of a business. Right. I mean, that's a good point. I mean, owners aren't going to, you know, shut down their business and say, okay, well, it got into a rough period. Let's, let's forget it. And we'll start up later, uh, you know, type thing. That's not the normal thing that they do, right? No, it's not the normal thing that they do. And one of my colleagues likes to use this analogy, um, you know, about dating versus marriage. We're uh-huh. not really the dating type, the way that we do things. We're more of the marrying type. And, okay. and that means that you need to endure some ups and downs along the way. Well, now to that point, if you are kind of the marrying type, um, nothing lasts forever in the stock market. So uh, how often are you getting divorces? <laughs> so certainly at all points in time, we have certain factors that we pay very close attention to, which we really think of as the conditions that every company we own needs to have in place to drive long-term compounding. And so if we ever see a red flag that seems to suggest that one of those pieces is not quite in place anymore, that really is a catalyst for us to reevaluate the business and make sure that we feel comfortable with their positioning because things do change. Right. And, and how long would you say it may take before you start realizing, hey, um, this this isn't this isn't the person I thought I married kind of thing to go with that analogy. But you know you have a thesis for the growth of a company, and 
Um, is, is that something that you'll normally figure out fairly quickly that, oh, you know what, I, our thesis was wrong? Um, or is that something where there's a, a, a change maybe in the industry conditions or maybe in a broader sense that the company is no longer able to grow in the way you expected them to because of some external influences? Those are things that we always have to pay attention to. And it often does take two or three quarters to get the sense of whether something is maybe more permanent in nature or might take a long time to work itself out versus something that's more temporary. But if you think about these businesses on a three month basis, there's a lot of things that can go wrong in the short term that right. are not indicative of any sort of change in their long-term potential. And certainly as we think about the market and its impact on stocks, Many of our companies, just like the broader market, are going to be affected by trends in the market, what's happening in terms of national and international news, yeah. what's happening with the current pandemic. Our companies aren't immune or their stocks aren't immune to the, the impacts of the, that news on the, their trading price. Right. But, a lot of times it has little bearing on what's actually happening in the business. We stay very focused on what's happening in the business. For, yeah. So, and I was just going to bring up, you know, this, this is probably one of the most unusual cases of an exogenous event with the pandemic um, really affecting businesses on the short term. But um, how have you been navigating the whole, okay, we've got the pandemic and now we've got the vaccine. We've got this, you know, shutdown and now we've got the reopening plays. We've got, um, a recessionary uh, type situation and now inflationary, uh, you know, concerns, uh, a, a lot of back and forth, a big dichotomy uh, in a very short period of time, usually something that takes, um, you know, quite a lot longer, many, many months uh, has really been compressed uh, in, in the last year or so. Um, did, did that require any uh, special navigation on your part? Or was it just a matter of, hey, we've got, to, we've got to trust in the businesses that we're invested in and, and let them do their thing. So when the pandemic first hit, it really did force us to take a step back and do a bit of risk management, thinking about which of our companies may be more vulnerable to the pandemic than others. And the ones that we paid specific attention to were the ones that had more of a physical presence. So let's say a retailer that had bricks and mortar stores or, or restaurants that really required traffic in order to drive great outcomes. And so we really sharpened our pencils early in the pandemic to look at some of these things and make sure that our businesses were somewhat insulated from some of the impacts that we were expecting earlier in the pandemic. But what's nice is as the pandemic went on, we actually got a lot of great signals that helped to affirm the theses that we had on many of the companies that we stayed very committed to, largely around changes in consumer behavior as it relates to digital transformation. And that was really exciting for us because consumer behaviors change so much, as did businesses and the way that they behaved. It really helped to accelerate by, in some cases, as much as five years, the, the success that we expected some of our companies to achieve. And so we got a lot of great signals during the pandemic about the resilience of these businesses and the fact that they were really on the right track in mm -hmm. terms of 
meeting customers where they are and where we think they're going in the future. And so that was actually really exciting to us. Certainly the numbers that companies reported in the pandemic were often very confusing and didn't have the same signal value right. as they normally do. But there were other things that actually had stronger signal value, like the way that management's behaved. Mm -hmm. And that is something that is really important to us in our quest to find great small businesses. And it's something that is a little bit harder to do. You know, when you think about understanding the management or the culture of the business, uh, these qualitative signals right, right. Uh, are a lot harder to measure. And yeah. to be able to see how our management teams behaved under the most challenging circumstances of their business career, we were really, really pleased with mm -hmm. what we were able to gather from that and to see the adaptability and the resilience and their ability to pivot and their ability to really leverage the strong feedback loops that they had in place to really respond to where the customer was going and the changing customer needs. Yeah. And so that was actually an area where we got better signals yeah, yeah, we normally do. Well, I definitely want to get into this qualitative versus the quantitative analysis that, that you do, um, and also how some of this, uh, I guess, better than expected uh, growth is affecting your long-term look. So we'll definitely get back into that right after the break. Stay tuned. Do you feel like you're always late to the best trades? You don't have to kick yourself for those missed opportunities any longer. Today is your day. Vantage Point's artificial intelligence has helped traders of all experience levels with its predictive analysis forecasting. Visit www.freestockcoaching.com and find out how their AI automatically recognizes global market patterns well ahead of the news to help you pick the best trade. Go to www.freestockcoaching.com to join a free live training session today. Vantage Point's patented artificial intelligence can give you a massive edge. Don't hesitate. Save your seat now. Trading involves financial risk and is not suitable for all investors. Past results do not guarantee future performance. Welcome back to Investing with IBD, sponsored by Vantage Point. I'm your host, Justin Nielsen, and joining me this week is my guest, Raina Lesser-Hanaway, Portfolio Manager and Analyst at Pollen Capital. Now, Raina, we were talking before the, the break about this whole idea of the qualitative versus the quantitative. And I mean, a lot of times, let's face it, the qualitative is a lot harder to get into uh, in terms of uh, analysis. So maybe we start with the easy stuff and, and get into the harder stuff. So what kind of quantitative things are you looking at? Are, you know, is it simple numbers on the balance sheet? Is it, you know, earnings, profitability, revenue growth? What, what are the factors that you look at quantitatively that most get your attention about a business that you want to invest in for the long term? So to start off, we're really looking for companies that are uniquely positioned. And the numbers really tell us a lot about that in terms of their ability to sustain growth over long periods of time with high returns on capital and a real robust business model that's conducive to generating a lot of cash. What we've found is that it's virtually impossible for companies to sustain something like that over long periods of time if they can't deliver those kinds of numbers. And so right. not unlike what many investors would look at, 
we are looking at things like revenue growth and the sustainability of revenue growth. We're looking at the margin structure of the business, especially understanding the gross margin structure and making sure that we're investing in businesses that are structured in such a way that it's really conducive to generating a lot of cash flow. Mm-hmm. And so are you comparing I'm, it to like the other industry peers in that case? Or I mean, what is your standard for? Uh, is there a certain number you're looking for? Or again, just in comparison to the industry in that regard? So it's really a little bit of both. But what I would say is when you're looking at companies that are in at an earlier stage, like our small and mid-sized companies are, right. you can really run into a lot of problems if you're too prescriptive about what the number needs to look like. Mm-hmm. Now, I've seen so many great businesses over time where you really need to do the work and look under the covers a little bit to understand at the unit level what's happening in the business, especially today where you have many businesses where a lot of the investments are flowing through the P&L. And so they're spending a lot on sales and marketing, which they should be given the net present value of those investments. But actually buried in the income statement, you can see that the unit level economics on more mature cohorts in the business are actually very, very strong. And so sometimes you know, it's more than what meets the eye or what you could grasp, you know, quickly taking a look at an income statement. And you know, that's where we've got to do the work and we've got to really understand the dynamics at play for each business and what their customer acquisition costs are, what the lifetime value of that customer is, uh, and that can really tell us a lot about the quality of the business. And it, it is about the numbers, but it's not easy to do. Yeah. So now what, what sources are you going to? I mean, you, you mentioned the 10K and the 10Q, income statements, balance sheet, all of this that, you know, I mean, that's easy to get. Um, but then you're also talking about how you have to go beyond that. So, so where do you go? Honestly, I think that there has never been a better time than now in my 25 year career to get information. There is so much information out there. The real challenge is figuring out how to distill it. Relevant information from the noise. (laughs) Yeah, there's, there's a lot of noise, but it's also, I think there's a discovery problem in that there's so much information and no one knows what matters. And I think that's where having a team like ours that's been doing this for a long time and has a lot of skill, you know, we're really able to put these mosaics together and understand better what's happening in the businesses. But some of the sources that I'm using today, it would come as a surprise to people. Of course, I'm talking to management teams, I'm reading 10Ks and 10Qs, I'm listening to the quarterly conference calls and the webcast Mm -hmm. presentations or conference presentations when we were in person, but I'm also using tools like YouTube, and I'm using things like podcasts, and Mm -hmm. I'm going to websites like Glassdoor to understand what employees are saying about these businesses. There's also now, there there are a lot of customer reviews online. Mm-hmm. for many of these different businesses and the products and services that they sell. And so there's this whole new, there are new pieces of information 
that really weren't available when I first started in the business. And to put this in perspective, in my first job as an analyst, and I was working on a team at Lord Abbott doing small cap growth. This was 1996. Right. One of the responsibilities I had was to stand at the fax machine at four <laughs> o'clock every day and wait for the press releases to come through. Yes. Uh-huh. Right? So think <laughs> Those about press releases how... that we all like ignore now. <laughs> yeah. Think about how different that is yeah. versus where we find ourselves today where not only do investors have you know, Bloomberg and FactSet on their desk, but people all across the world, you know, lay people that aren't in this business, they're not professional investors, they have access to so yeah. much information. And searchable. You know, it's not something that you have to just wade through all that paper that you had to back in the fax machine days. It's, oh, you know what, instead of doing that, I'll just search for you know, anything on the company that I like, you know, any press releases that have come out, you know, lately. And, or, you know, at this point, you can even uh, sometimes find it faster on social media, you know, <laughs> yeah. and, 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 and then it's a matter of confirming it, you know, of course, but uh, yeah, that, that, that is, it, it, it is funny how much things have changed. Uh, and, and, you know, when you started, I mean, one of the things that was very interesting about that time period was that there was this big paradigm shift that you were, I guess, at the forefront of recognizing because of the analysis and the position that you were in, um, you know, where you were at and what you were uh, studying at the time. Uh, do you think that there is a similar paradigm shift going on right now? And if so, what, what, what is that shift? I do. And, you know, to, as I reflect on my career, I had a very lucky start in the mid-1990s working in a firm where the internet, which was really just being born at that time, was something that was really scary to everyone. And that many of the investors at the firm I worked at that had a lot of experience investing, they wanted nothing to do yeah. with these internet stocks. And so instead, um, me like having no baggage and not having kind of the mental models that, that they already had that were holding them back, I really got the opportunity to look at some very exciting companies really early. Because and no so, one else wanted to look at them. Yeah, <laughs> And you exactly. got it by default, huh? <laughs> so no one else wanted to look at them. And I got to cover things like Amazon when mm. they first got public and they were just selling books and CDs. Right. And, you know, I learned a lot of great lessons from that opportunity. One of them is that, you really need to be open to updating your views mm -hmm. as behaviors change. And we saw massive changes in behaviors in terms of the adoption of the internet that were evident even back then. I mean, obviously in, in hindsight, um, we have a much better idea right oh, now. Oh, it's always easy in hindsight. Right? Um, <laughs> but you know, the internet really unlocked quite a bit in terms of consumer behavior. So what and, is that paradigm shift now that you're seeing? You know, what I think is really fascinating right now is this generational shift that mm -hmm. we're seeing. So if you think about millennials and Gen Z uh, and what they came into adulthood with or came of age with um, and using technology 
um, not just to shop, but to communicate. Right. Right. That is really a change that I think we all should be paying very close attention to. And Shopping, entertainment, that, communication. I mean, the, the, the list, I mean, business. I mean, the list yeah, just goes on. Mm -hmm. The list goes on and it's just so fascinating to me. And what it really tells me is that companies, every company that I invest in, no matter what sector they're in, they need to be maniacally focused on digital. Yeah. And, and, and this is something that you talked a lot about. Uh, uh, so again, kind of getting a little bit more into this qualitative idea, um, you mentioned uh, a little bit of a flywheel that you uh, approach that you look at. Can you describe that a little bit? What, what kind of flywheel are you looking at? Uh, and I'm assuming this is something very different from the Peloton flywheel, yes, right? <laughs> it is different than the Peloton. Uh, so we use our flywheel framework to determine whether all the key pieces are in place to drive long-term compounding. And to us, this includes being uniquely positioned, having a repeatable sales process, a robust self-funding business model, an effective management team. And it also means that every company we invest in must always be investing for the future. Mm -hmm. The way we think about the flywheel is that each piece drives the next piece. And if you fail at one of the pieces, the flywheel essentially slows down or it stops altogether or it moves backwards. And mm -hmm. so we do not make any exceptions when it comes to this flywheel. It's a part of our process that we're incredibly disciplined about. And it really helps us. It's a good guide in making sure that all of the companies that we buy really have the ability to drive sustainable growth with persistently high returns over long periods of time, and that they can survive and thrive in any environment. And so you asked me earlier about protecting capital, and I believe that investing in flywheel companies is what helps us protect capital. It's that they do have all these pieces that enable them to survive and thrive in any environment. And as I look back on the pandemic, for example, our companies were able to stay firmly focused on the long term right. and were able to invest in innovation and were able to make interesting pivots in their business that really helped to unlock more long-term value for their business because they didn't have to be short-term focused and afraid. Their yeah. business models weren't in a place that made them vulnerable. And a lot of that has to do with being really disciplined when it, it comes to financial matters. Mm -hmm. you know, one of the great lessons that I learned when I was covering technology companies back in the 90s, and we all know how that ended in the <laughs> early 2000s, is that it's really not enough to just have a great strategic vision that you really need to have the execution know-how yes. and you need to have the fiscal discipline in order to really deliver on that over long periods of time. And I've seen many, I've covered thousands of companies in my career in the small cap space. I have seen many fail because they really lack those two pieces. Mm -hmm. And they only have the strategic vision. And so we spend a lot of time 
making sure that these other pieces are firmly in place. Mm -hmm. So to this end, I mean, we were talking a little bit uh, at the end of the last segment about the pandemic versus the reopening and how, you know, uh, in a way, everyone started thinking of things in terms of, is this something that's going to benefit from the pandemic? I mean, Zoom, of course, comes to mind, Peloton with people, you know, creating their own home home gyms, um, you know, versus uh, something that was going to benefit from the reopening plays. And we saw a lot of that after November 9th, what, you know, we've kind of started terming as vaccine day, um, when, when the efficacy of a lot of these vaccines came out. So uh, is that something that's coming into play in your decision making? Or again, does it just come down to the, the companies that were financially sound already and making those good decisions were going to do well no matter what? So I think it, it both matter. And to us, it, the way I would frame it is that we want companies to be on the right side of change. Hmm. And when it comes to digital, you know, that's something that really for any business to survive, they need to transform digitally. Mm-hmm. And as you see some of these processes move from being in the physical economy to the digital economy, it's our belief that we're never going back. Right. And so it's really essential for companies to figure this out. And obviously the recipe for each business is different and companies don't have a one size fits all approach that they can follow. They have to figure out what's right for them. What their advantage is. Yeah, but Mm -hmm. during the pandemic, consumers and businesses shifted their behaviors to digital so urgently and more meaningfully than ever before it's created this pressure for businesses to catch up to their customers. And I love that because it's this push and pull that never existed in quite that way before. And I think that most companies now really understand that there is a profound paradigm shift underway and that digital is no longer seen as just a sales channel. It's something that needs to be woven into an entire business model. The focus. It's the unlocking thing for many of these companies to really make a stronger connection with their customers. They can use it to drive better business processes, which can enhance their profitability. They can change their business models in ways that really drive much better long-term returns. And then for our smaller companies, and perhaps most exciting of all these things is The internet has really democratized the playing field for these small businesses. Think about it just in relation to talent. You know, many of these smaller companies, they may be headquartered somewhere in the middle of nowhere and it's harder for them to access talent. But now as they can move things to the cloud and their employees can work remotely and they've certainly grown in comfort with working remotely and understand that employees can be very productive in that format, it changes their entire talent pool. They can hire from across the globe today. And so as I look at these small businesses and think about what's possible for them, the internet and the way the internet is used today has been this unlocking event for them, where a lot of things that were really more of an up 
upward battle for these these companies relative to large companies and that were barriers for them. A huge disadvantage. Yeah. No, they're no longer disadvantaged. In fact, they may have advantages right. mm -hmm. relative to larger companies just in their ability to be more flexible, be more adaptable, be more nimble mm -hmm. in their behaviors. Well, Raina, I think some of the companies that you chose to talk about in the next segment um, are really exciting for exactly those reasons that you just mentioned. So we'll get into those three ideas that you have to share with our audience right after the break. Stay tuned. Do you want to conquer market volatility? We can help you protect your hard-earned capital. Visit www.freestockcoaching.com and find out how Vantage Point's AI technology can forecast stock market trends up to 72 hours in advance with incredible accuracy. Vantage Point's patented technology analyzes huge quantities of global data in seconds, so you can finally stop guessing what's going to happen next. Check out www.freestockcoaching.com and experience Vantage Point for free. Learn how successful traders generate their wealth. Trading involves financial risk and is not suitable for all investors. Past results do not guarantee future performance. Welcome back to Investing with IBD podcast sponsored by Vantage Point. I'm your host, Justin Nielsen, and I'm joined by Raina Lesser-Hanaway from Poland Capital. Uh, she's, again, got this focus on small and mid-cap. And one of the things we were talking about is this paradigm shift that's been going on with uh, the move to digitization. And one of the things you mentioned, Raina, was how this has allowed smaller companies, which again is your focus, to sometimes have access to a wider talent pool than they would ever have had before. And I think one of your ideas, Globant, G-L-O-B is the ticker symbol, kind of speaks to that idea. It does. So I hope I've been able to convey how excited we are about digital transformation and that it's really something that every company needs to embrace in order to thrive in the future. But the thing is, is that these digital transformation projects are really hard to go at alone for many mm -hmm. businesses because they don't have the access to the best talent in order to pursue many of these projects. And so this is where Globant comes in. Globant is a digitally native IT services company that partners with some of the best companies in the world in order to help them transform. This is a market that I am personally very passionate about. And it really dates back to one of my earliest assignments as an analyst was covering IT service companies. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that really stands out to me about not just the, the quality of a business like Globant or some of the others that I've looked at, but it's really about the industry more broadly. It's that customers always have a need for services like these and right. smart IT services companies can continue to adapt to deliver to the customer what they need. Mm -hmm. And so digital transformation is what Globant focuses on. They have some of the best people in the world helping their customers get to the next century with whatever projects they need to pursue. And they've been involved in some really exciting stuff, helping customers like Google, like Disney, like Coca-Cola, Electronic Arts, you know, many companies that have already demonstrated quite a bit of success in digital. 
And the company is only worth, you know, about $9 billion today. And when I look at the size of some of the larger players in the industry, like an Accenture, let's say, right. at over mm-hmm. $200 billion, it really speaks to what the potential is for a business like this. And I've seen many IT services businesses grow from being smaller cap companies to very large companies. Mm-hmm. It's hard to do it well, but Globot has certainly done an amazing job. The company has been able to grow about 25% a year for several years now. They've got a good margin structure and they do a great job of investing in the future, which as you know, is something that's really important to us. And so it firmly keeps them on the right side of change. They're always investing in new studios that have the capabilities around emerging technologies that their customers want to use in their digital transformation efforts. And they're also very forward thinking in making sure that they have other capabilities that are important to the clients when they're pursuing these projects. For example, they've really invested in understanding culture and sustainability, because even though those aren't the projects that they're specifically working on, all of the great companies today are really focused on getting those things right. Right. And so Globot needs to get that right with the recommendations that they're making to their clients. So they just make it a part of their culture from the get-go uh, since yes. they know how important it is. And, you know, you mentioned the, the EPS growth rate. So I mean, showing here on MarketSmith for those that are watching the video, that it has a, a 24% annual growth rate, as you said, over the last few years, but also it has an earning stability, you know, so we have this earning stability rating where it goes from one to 99 with one being the most stable. And so a seven for that earning stability rating over again, a three to five year period is is really very remarkable to have that robust of uh, profitability growth and the stability to go behind it. And I mean, just looking at the monthly chart here, I'm gonna shift there. Uh, this is one of those things where, um, you know, if, 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 you, if you aren't aware of this company, you might be surprised at how much it's grown already and, you know, I guess to your point, you know, you're, you're comparing it to something like Accenture. Uh, the ticker symbol on that is ACN. And we actually had someone talking about that a few weeks ago. Uh, a lot of the same exciting things that you're talking about Globon, but at a, a much larger market cap. So, I mean, you're really looking at a, a fairly large runway here. Yes, we are. And the repeatability is something that really attracted us to this business. So you know, as I described our flywheel before, you know, I talked about this idea of companies needing to have a repeatable sales process. And in the case of Globant, what we saw was that they did a great job of getting new customers in the door and then continuing to grow those customers over time by selling more and more services to them. And that's something that continues to stand out to us as something they're really good at. We're very excited to see the penetration grow even amongst some of their largest customers. Yeah, so one one final point on this. Uh, I, I, I note that the headquarters is in Luxembourg. It looks like they have uh, a lot of service centers uh, spread throughout um, Argentina, Uruguay, Colombia, you know, a lot of South America. So it, is this, is this really got the foreign exposure that uh, you, you, you would look at just by looking at that description? 
So a lot of their revenue actually comes from companies in the United States. Right. But when you look at how they're delivering the business, they're capturing the best talent across the globe. Initially, what stood out to us was their ability to hire talent in South America, in Argentina specifically. That was really their edge when I was first introduced to this business. And they still do have quite a few people there, but they've appropriately broadened their sources of a talent to many geographies across the globe. And with 17,000 people today and growing, and as you can imagine, they've got to hire a lot of people right. to really continue to deliver on that growth. I do think it was a very smart move for them to really broaden out where they find people. Yes. Okay, let's go ahead and shift. Um, we were talking about that whole idea of who are the pandemic beneficiaries and who, who aren't. And Etsy certainly came out uh, very early on as one of, the, one of the pandemic beneficiaries. And of course, what a lot of people focused on was the delivery of masks and not, not just masks, but customizable masks. You know, you could get masks with, you know, all sorts of different designs, patterns that, you know, uh, individuals were making. And there was a, a very, a very human touch to it. So what is it that Etsy did right throughout the pandemic? Uh, and what, what was just part of their business from the beginning and would maybe have done well, pandemic or no pandemic? So I think to start, you know, as I think about Etsy's performance during the pandemic, you know, what we see investors doing right now, especially with these rotations from pandemic growth companies or beneficiaries to pandemic laggards is this mental accounting that investors often like to do mm -hmm. to try and explain the cause and effect of a company's right. performance. And of course, it's natural for us to look at companies whose stocks went straight up during the pandemic and attribute that success to pandemic benefits. And of course, there are some companies that had pandemic benefits that will mean reverse. But we don't think Etsy is one of those. So I like to call it in Etsy's case that they've been pigeonholed as a pandemic beneficiary, when really they're just a great secular growth company. Mm -hmm. So what has me really excited about Etsy, especially coming out of the pandemic, is they took this opportunity making masks and getting their sellers to make masks. They right. used it as a once in a lifetime customer acquisition opportunity. And it exposed them to many new customers across the globe and across all sorts of demographics. It brought new customers in the door. Yeah. But what's most exciting is the fact that they keep on coming back. Right. Long after their need for masks mm -hmm. are over. Yeah. And so that to me really is what helps to separate companies that are these secular winners versus just pandemic beneficiaries. And a lot of it has to do um, with what companies did with the excess cash flow that they generated from things like selling masks. Mm -hmm. So in Etsy's case, they invested quite a bit 
in product and in marketing and in making the tools better to kind of match up customers with what they wanted so making yes. the discovery better and that has really helped to to drive really strong growth in areas of their business that had nothing to do with the pandemic so in the first quarter of this year the revenue growth in etsy's um business that wasn't related to the pandemic, it was about 130%. Yeah, just an incredible number. So again, as you yeah. said, it's not just a pandemic play here. <laughs> yeah, uh -huh. it's not just a pandemic play. And I think that, you know, as you look at some of these numbers from earlier this year, it really tells you a lot because masks now are only just two to 3% of the overall business. And you, so you can really start to see what's happening in the rest of the business. And it's really encouraging. And beyond just like the, the amazing GMV growth that they're delivering in these non-pandemic related areas, mm -hmm. it's really exciting to see what's happening with frequency of purchase. On right. their platform. The and habitual, actually, what they call the habitual users, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. That is actually something that really stood out to us when we were first looking at this business. It was clear that they were doing a good job of getting folks in the door to make a single purchase, but it seemed like they had a lot of room to improve when it came to driving more frequent purchases. And as you think about customer lifetime value, driving the frequency of purchase is the most important thing. And we're really starting to see great performance on that front, especially with these habitual buyers that you just referenced. And, and right. those are people that are, are spending at a certain threshold each year and that are coming back for six or seven visits each right. year. And you know, uh, our very own Ali Quorum did a interview on investing strategies a few months ago with the CFO uh, of, of Etsy. And one of the things that struck me about the interview was this idea of um, not just the marketing money that they were spending, but kind of the organic growth they were getting by reaching out to customers, previous customers, bringing them back into the fold and turning them into habitual users when maybe they had kind of dropped dropped off a little bit. And so uh, it was kind of reminding people of what they did. And as you said, uh, improving that whole experience of the, the matchup. And uh, I was surprised to learn that they invested so much in AI. In fact, uh, we had on the podcast, uh, Arusha had on the podcast about a year ago, someone from RoboGlobal talking about Etsy as an AI company, which mm -hmm. again, is not something you would normally associate with Etsy. You just think, you know, retail, why, why would you, why would you be using AI at all? Yeah, well, it is hard to get a match when you have so much product. Yes, right. On a site like that and in a marketplace. And finding like that. It, yeah, know, finding, finding it. what you're looking for. You know, here again, uh, you know, habitual users can sometimes, you know, circumvent. They they know what keywords to use, but if you're just starting, the last thing you want is a is a poor experience that maybe makes it so that you don't come back. Yeah, I think that's true. And just last quarter, they added 16 million new buyers. And yeah. some of those were these returning customers that hadn't been active. 
in a long time, just like you referenced. And it's just amazing. They have over 90 million active buyers right now on the platform. Mm -hmm. And I've started to hear people talk about Etsy in the same sentence that they're talking about Target or Walmart or Amazon. Mm -hmm. Etsy's quite a bit smaller than those companies, as we know, but the potential is there. Right. And, and again, it's a very different experience. It has uh, definitely differentiated itself with the whole idea of, you know, that, that human contact, you get sometimes a written note from the seller or you get something customizable. Uh, so for people that aren't seeing the chart uh, on the video, I just want to kind of run down some of these growth numbers. So the, the revenue growth in the last four quarters, uh, 137%, 128, 129, and 141% in the most recent quarter. Um, the, the earnings growth, I mean, this is going, you know, I, again, triple digit, um, you know, for 436, 483, 332, and then 900, you know, so, and it's, that's up to a dollar per share now. So it's, uh, again, these are, these are phenomenal number numbers uh, and, and growth numbers uh, specifically. Um, now the earning stability here is, uh, is higher at 30. And, you know, part of that could have been, you know, pandemic related, uh, you know, they, they did have some losses um, or actually not losses, but they had some um, you know, growth that was, was not, uh, you know, not growing for a little while on the earnings side, but, uh, it looks like they've, they've very quickly turned that around. And as you said, you know, now they're really poised for that longer runway that you were talking about. Yeah, they are. And I love what you said about kind of that, that human experience mm-hmm. and interaction that you have. And you know, one of the things we always look for in the companies that we invest in is that, they're really led from a place of purpose and that they have a mission that everyone in the company really buys into. And in Etsy's case, it's keeping commerce human. Yeah, yes, absolutely. Um, very good. Well, let's go ahead and wrap this up. Uh, on the on the non-human side, uh, we'll go with uh, Trupanion because this is for the pets uh, out there. So what is it about Trupanion that, um, now, now this is one that doesn't have earnings. This doesn't have profitability. They've got some pretty decent revenue growth. So why is Trupanion even on your radar with it not being profitable yet? So I think if we zoom out, the thing that is really exciting to us about Trupanion and the pet insurance industry overall is that penetration in the US for pet insurance is in the low single digits and it's growing 15 to 20% per year. But we see examples in other developed countries where pet insurance penetration is at 15 to 20% and growing. You can see this in the UK, you can see it in Sweden, you can see it in Japan and some other European countries. And so that really helps to exemplify for us what the potential is here in the US. You're kind of using those as leading indicators. Yes, I do think they're leading in indicators and coupled with the fact that we see pet ownership rising, spending on pets going up, and especially with kind of younger generations, there's really this trend towards treating pets as a family member. Right. People are really willing to spend quite a bit on their pets. Mm-hmm. And veterinary costs are also growing. And so this idea of pet insurance is really very exciting to us in that it really gives pet owners a way to budget 
mm-hmm. for their pet expenses. Or at least Rather, not be surprised. <laughs> yeah, no, and there can be some big surprises if something goes wrong with your pet, but it's also just expensive to have a pet. And then lots yeah. of times, there are lots of small but unforeseen expenses that when you put them all together, it adds up to a big bill. Mm-hmm. And so we think that consumers are going to move more in the direction of purchasing pet insurance. And we feel that Trupanion is really the best company to go with. And that's really for a few reasons. You know, First is that they are more innovative than any company in the, the space today. And they've developed this software network with vets where customers can get instant reimbursement. Uh So you bring your pet in for treatment and rather than having to submit a bunch of papers and hoping that you're going to get your money back in two weeks or a month, you get reimbursed right away. Think about how powerful that is, not just for the pet owner, but also for the vet. Yeah. Raise your hand if you hate paperwork. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, the company's been growing about 30% per year for several years. And you did mention that the company is unprofitable. And as you remember earlier in the podcast, I talked about unit level economics and right. how in some cases it's really important to look to the unit level economics to really get proof that the business model works. And in the case of Trupanion, they're growing rapidly they're investing heavily in new customer acquisition. Mm -hmm. And we can see that customers are very profitable for them. Mm -hmm. And so we get really excited when we look at that customer level data, even though when you look at the consolidated P&L, it makes the business appear to be less profitable than it actually is. Okay. The other thing that's really stood out to us is that the founder is incredibly special. I would recommend to anyone that is interested in learning more about Trupanion, go back and read some of his annual letters. They're some of the best that I've ever read in my entire career. And it's clear that he's just really generated this purpose-driven culture that we love and has a a very thoughtful way of thinking about the unit economics and the math around their marketing budget for new customers. And he does it in a very transparent way. And so that's a great way to learn more about the business. And then the other thing that really appeals to us is we see them making a lot of investments in the future and Mm -hmm. continually doing things to make their business better. One of those things right now is they're experimenting with things in the direct-to-consumer channel. And that may open up a whole new set of customers that may not have purchased this kind of pet insurance at the vet. And so that's exciting for us too, in that we do think that on the margin, they'll be able to attract new customers with some of this um, new way of going out and acquiring them. Right. And if they can keep the retention levels up, uh, you know, those unit level economics, as you mentioned, 
uh, could be quite favorable. And as 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 you said, this is a this is a four billion dollar company right now, but you know potentially a lot of runway. So uh, it sounds like you've given people some homework uh, to do, especially reading those uh, annual shareholder letters uh, from from the Trupanion uh, CEO. And uh, yeah, just as a reminder for folks uh, to, to run down those names again, uh, we started with Globant uh, G L. OB, and then Etsy, E-T-S-Y, and finally Trupanion, T-R-U-P. Uh, Raina Lesser-Hannaway, I want to thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Um, that's it for investing with IBD. I really appreciate your time and that unique insight that you gave us uh, today. Thank you, Justin. I really enjoyed our conversation. Okay. And on next week's show, we're going to bring back a very familiar face. We're going to have Arusha Paris from O'Neill Global Advisors and the former host of Investing with IBD podcast. Uh, he's going to come and uh, talk about stocks, the market, and tell me everything that I've done wrong since he's left the show. So make sure you stay tuned for that. And I'm Justin Nielsen. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye now. And for this week's notes and charts, make sure to go to investors.com slash podcast, where you'll find details for each episode in the podcast episode section. And make sure to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast if you haven't already. We'd really appreciate it. You can also send us your questions and comments to investingpodcast at investors.com. We would love to hear from you and may use your comments on an upcoming episode. This podcast is for informational and educational purposes only, and nothing should be construed as a recommendation to buy, hold, or sell any securities. Make sure to consider consulting with your financial advisor before making any investment decisions.